Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hey there, Baha'i Blogcasters. It's me, Rain, and what a thrill it is. We seem to be relaxing these COVID barriers. I've got actual guests in my house right now as a live in-studio guest. The first time I've had someone on Baha'i Blogcast sitting at an actual microphone in about a year and a half. So very excited. Nice to see you, Catherine. I've got Catherine Hoganson here with me. Really thrilled. Her book, Lighting the Western Sky, is to date my favorite Baha'i history book. I found it fascinating, moving, mysterious, and I'm just learning so much about her. She's also an attorney, worked for a very long time at the International Baha'i Center and at the National Baha'i Center, so tons of service tucked in between her writing. She's got a new book on Horace Holly coming out sometime, hopefully in the next year or so. She's going to give us a sneak peek on that, but also a student of the stories of Abdu'l-Bahá. So in this most sacred, holy, and exciting year, uh, celebrating Abdu'l-Bahá's legacy, remembering Abdu'l-Bahá on this podcast and in so many other ways, just thrilled to be hearing some stories that maybe we all have not heard before. So Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rain. It's really a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Lovely, lovely place here in, in California. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming all the way out here to this uh, little town where we live. But as we get started, you have uh, an incredible resume. But tell us how this all started. How did your Baha'i journey start? I don't know anything about uh, you becoming a Baha'i or what your background was. Maybe a sneak peek of like where you grew up, your childhood or whatever. But what drew you to the faith? What started your spiritual journey? I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Beautiful town. Good daughter of the South. Okay. And was raised in the Methodist Church, in a very conservative Methodist Church. I always was religious. Even when I was a little kid, I was religious. Mm -hmm. I used to get upset when my parents didn't want to go to church on Sundays. They wanted to play hooky. And that uh, sort of amazed them that they had a kid that wanted to be there anytime the church was open. But I found that as I was getting into my teens, that I had plateaued, that I wasn't getting more out of the church, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and started looking at uh, other things. I was interested in the occult and reincarnation and other interesting topics that people in the 70s and late 60s were interested Uh in. Uh-huh, sure, yep. And uh, I had this roommate in college who was very into Seals and Crofts okay, and always played their albums, and I thought they were nonsensical. I might, didn't much care for Seals and Crofts. <laughs> okay. They were a little bit too nasal. Hopefully they're, they're, not, they're not listening. They're not listening. But uh, during one of my summer vacations, they came through Richmond, and one of my coworkers who I was hanging out with said, oh, let's go to the concert. It's Why not? Friday night, something to do. Sure. Sure. So we went. And on the way there, I remember she said in the car that uh, they were members of some religion and were going to offer for the the audience to stick around and hear more. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, why not? You know, we don't have anything else to do. So during the middle of the concert, they made the statement introducing one of their songs that all religions come from the same source. They're all from God. And I've been interested in the ecumenical movement. And this little light went off in my head and said... What is the ecumenical movement? movement? I don't really... That was... The ecumenical movement, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, was trying to reunite Christian denominations. Mm, Yeah. And there were a few denominations. The Methodist Church uh, had uh, united with the United Brethren, I think it was, and there were a few other groups that actually were able to do that. But over centuries, so many differences that had arisen within each of the Christian denominations that it sort of hit a, a wall. Mm. And uh, so I, I, anything that talked about bringing the religions together was very appealing to me. Can I just say something about that? Because I find that really interesting what you're saying, because I remember specifically as a kid in the 70s 
that there was a great deal of disunity in the Christian denominations. And you would have Protestants saying about other Protestants, they're going to hell right? because their baptism isn't right or they believe in this or, the, or this ceremony or not. And certainly Catholics are and they're not true Christians and who's the true Christian. And there was a lot of that infighting that maybe the ecumenical movement succeeded because that doesn't really exist anymore. Right. If you talk to Christians and they'll kind of draw a blank. When you, if, you, if you mention something like that, that you'll kind of get some blank stares because they'll be like, oh, no, we're all Christians. We believe in Jesus. We're all going to heaven and no matter what your denomination. So it, that has been an interesting shift over the yeah, last 40, yeah. 50 years. Yeah. Well, I remember my childhood mentor was the director of Christian education at my church who had been a missionary to China. And uh, she arrived in China and Shanghai, taught at a school in the 1920s and 30s. And she said the Chinese thought it was nonsensical that you had a Methodist church over here and a Presbyterian church over there and a Catholic church over there. So all those little things were in my head, those little points of light. Mm -hmm. So when they said that, Something went bing, and I thought, oh, that makes sense. So then they invited the audience to stick around, so my friend and I did, and listened to them talk about the faith for a few minutes, and then they invited the audience uh, that had stuck around to then go to a university auditorium, and so at midnight, we went over to the university auditorium and heard them talk a little bit more about the faith. And it just happened, they were passing out flyers for a fireside, for a Baha'i meeting. I've heard of these infamous... Seals and Crofts fire says, was it, was it Seals and Crofts actually doing yes. it or would they have other people? Yes. Marsha Day, their, their, um, manager and yeah. Seals and Crofts were the ones doing it. And, uh, they were lovely and had interesting things to say. I don't remember any specific points. Mm-hmm. They passed out a little bit of Baha'i literature and the local Baha'is were there passing out a flyer for a fireside at somebody's home. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, that home was in a neighborhood I was familiar with. So my friend and I showed up just with this flyer. Mm-hmm. Now, in all the years I've been a Baha'i, I've never had someone who was not connected to the faith yeah. show up with a flyer at a person's house. Yeah. yeah. But I was that person. Right. So I did and started going to, to meetings. And as soon as my parents found out, they got very upset and wouldn't let me go anymore. And so I would say, I'm going to my friend's house. And I did. I went and picked her up. And then we'd go to a fireside. So (laughs) this went on about six weeks. And there was a spiritual journey that occurred. But somehow I knew I could not go back to college at the end of the summer. That it was like this inner compulsion that despite all the rational reasons to not be a Baha'i, I knew I had to be a Baha'i. I knew it was true. Mm, mm. And uh, I was a little concerned that maybe it was the Baha'is were so nice. But, <laughs> um, that you were being duped. Exactly. By them. But uh, I, I just knew something inside me said, you have to do this. Mm-hmm. So it was, I'm sure that the, the angels in the next world were all laughing their heads off because they knew it was going to make my life richer and I was fighting it. Mm. But um, it took me about six weeks. And uh, became a Baha'i. Wow. And uh, I was the only Baha'i in about a 100-mile radius for the next year. Okay. So finally, after I'd been a Baha'i a few years, somebody said to me, Kathy, it's not Shonji Effendi, it's Shogi Effendi. <laughs> 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 and, you know, unfortunately, at the in the early 70s, uh, in 73 when I became a Baha'i, most of the Baha'is were young. They had only been Baha'is for a couple of years. We had a huge number of youth coming into the faith during this period. Yeah. And the assemblies were all very new, and so they didn't know what they were doing either. A lot of misinformation, lot of I mis- imagine. Oh, yeah. gosh, a lot of it. So uh, anyway, so somehow or other, it took me a few years before I was finally in an actual Baha'i community and went to my first feast, but um, took off from there. Okay, great, great. And then you ended up going to law school? yes. I was um, uh, undergrad when I became a Baha'i and then went to uh, University of Virginia Law School. And I w- was always interested in law, but very interested in it from the standpoint of service mm-hmm. is why I wanted to go into it in the first place. Yeah. So um, I ended up, uh, was interested in criminal law, but also family law and worked for legal aid. Then I can't I- think of a profession that would allow for more service 
and yet you so rarely see exactly. service coming from exactly. people with that profession. Yeah, that was my only reason for wanting to do it, yeah. the service. So um, I actually clerked for the U.S. Court of Appeals, and probably the first and only time someone's gone from a clerkship to legal aid. But, uh, <laughs> wow, wow, yeah. So anyway, but uh, I, I enjoyed it, but then I got recruited to work at the National Center and um, came back, did more work in... And in what was it about home. that you heard at that fireside or in those first years that, like, stirred your soul, that moved your heart, that made you say... I have to do this, you know, this is, it's, it's transformed my life's path. I believe I have faith. You know what I mean? I'm always, that's such a mysterious process. You know, things can really make sense. Like, oh, all religions come from one God and these writings make a lot of sense and stuff. But what is that heart? What was that heart moment for you? Well, progressive revelation was the, the idea that all religions come from the same God mm. was the big thing. But one of the things that was actually holding me back was the Methodist Church, particularly in the South, was still conservative and had been based on temperance. You know, Charles Wesley and, oh. and John Wesley uh, had been very against gambling and drinking and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and my family had been part of that. And so when I went off to college, I was finally starting to not feel guilty for occasionally drinking. But I always prided myself thinking, I can hold my liquor. I don't, I don't have a problem with drinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I realized that the rules were a problem for me going back to college mm-hmm. for my junior year, mm-hmm. or sophomore year, excuse me. Yeah, the moral laws. The moral laws. And I thought, if religion, I mean, if drinking is so important it would keep me away from religion, then it really does rule my life. Oh, interesting perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that helped me. But the, the mystical thing that sort of happened was the church I grew up in was very racist. Yeah. Uh, when I was uh, still in high school, the brownie troop that was meeting at the church became integrated. And they had to have a special meeting of the, the board of directors of the church as to whether the brownie troop could continue to meet there. Holy because moly. Because it had little black girls. Wow. And maybe drinking out of the water fountains. So I was angry hmm. with that particular church. And the summer that, before I heard about the faith, I had... A, made arrangements with the the minister to have a youth worship service and to just turn over the whole Sunday morning to a couple of us from the youth. And we really wanted to sort of, we weren't going to yell and scream at people, but we wanted to sort of move their thinking. Yeah. And the more I started going to firesides, my attitude changed. Mm. And I wasn't, it wasn't that I was so angry anymore. I felt sorry for them because I could see something bigger that they didn't see. Uh-huh. And it almost became a burden to do this worship service. So the worship service went so well that people were crying. Mm. And uh, when it was over, I didn't have a sense of accomplishment. I had a sense of having been used. Hmm. And I felt like this big rock was moved out of the way Hmm. and suddenly I had to be a behind. I had done what I needed to do for the Methodist Church and it was time to move on. Wow, how about that? So flash forward, great story, flash forward Baha'i International Center. I don't want to spend a ton of time but I don't know what it's like to work there. You were started there in the 90s, is that right? Uh, 92. 92 through uh, 2010, 18 years through some of the, there were wars, there was the opening of the terraces, there was the introduction of, I guess that, that, I don't know the name of that first five-year plan in 96 that introduced the concept of, you know, this community building, Ruhi classes, you know, core activities, institute process, thingamajiggy. Some big, big changes there. Uh, Can you give us a little snapshot into that experience? We were very, very fortunate because we were there during really a big transition 
period, the World Center was like going through a, a big bend in a, of a river. And uh, when we first arrived in 92, it was the Holy Year, the 100th anniversary. Oh, yeah. So we got there, the, my daughters and I got there just weeks before that, and my husband was already there a month before we were. So we were able to be there for that, for mm-hmm. the 100th anniversary mm-hmm. of um, Baha'u'llah's passing. But also the, the, the real work on the Ark was just really getting going. So we got to see the buildings rise up and the mm. day they put the columns up and this wow. sort of thing. So that was cool. But the biggest thing was we still had three hands of the cause of God there, and particularly Amal Baha was there. Mm. And she was really the first lady of the faith and was treated with tremendous respect and deference. Mm-hmm. And we also had, of course, uh, Mr. Furtan and Dr. Varga, so because my husband was the uh, treasurer of the Baha'i International Fund, and I also, on the, because we had small children, I did a lot of things on the side. And one of the things I did on the side was a lot of cooking and, and events. Okay. So that put me in contact with these people a lot more than the average person. But we got invited by Amatul Bahat to dinner at her house in her kitchen one time, and, and that was, um, was, was wonderful. Oh, what she a, came to our home for what dinner. What an honor. And yeah. um, for those listening that don't know, she was the, the widowed wife of Shoghi Effendi from, from Canada and uh, an amazing Baha'i teacher, thinker, writer, firebrand, inspirer, and uh, the special title of one of the very few hands of the cause of God. So let me take a short uh, story there. The House of Justice held uh, two banquets in her honor, one on what would have been the 50th anniversary of her wedding and Mm. the other on what would have been her 60th wedding anniversary to honor her for her many decades, uh, a lifetime of service. And... I happened to be one of the people who was involved with putting the 60th one on. At the end of the dinner, Dr. Varga got up, and he likened her to Mary Magdalene. He said when Jesus passed away and the disciples went into hiding, it was Mary Magdalene who said, Come on, fellas. Yeah. We have work to do. We can't be in hiding. We have to get up and do something. He said in 1957, she had more reason to be brokenhearted at the sudden passing of Shoghi Effendi than anybody. Mm. But the hands were all equals. Mm. So what could they do? None of them felt that they had the right to initiate anything. She put her own feelings aside and is the one who invited the hands to come to the Holy Land for a conclave. He said at that moment, had she not done that, mm. he had no idea what would have happened, but it would have been a disaster. Yeah. And uh, that uh, she was also the bridge at that conclave between the Eastern and Western hands, many of whom had never met each other before. And so uh, for, him, for him... Which is a theme in your work, and we'll be yes. getting to your book, Lighting yes, the Western yes. Sky, but that, yes. and that is... I always find that really, I want you to continue, but just to say really quickly, that is always so fascinating to me that we forget yes. like how never the twain shall meet. Yes. The Eastern Baha'is from the Western Baha'is are. Yes. yes. And the whole idea that there were these legions of hands of the cause, not legions, but dozens of hands of the cause from Iran and in India and parts East that had never met the, their U.S. counterparts and being brought together for the first time. I had never thought about that before. That's fascinating. Well, some of them had met uh, in the the first first two contingents because they met at uh, the international conferences. But then at the end, Shoghi Effendi appointed a whole lot of other hands right before he passed away, and mm. they had not met with mm. all these mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. So she, she knew the languages because mm-hmm. she also had had to learn Persian and some Arabic. And so she served as both translator and cultural bridge hmm. between these different groups. Yeah. And uh, he, Dr. Vargas said, had she not done that at that critical juncture, 
he just shuddered to think what would have happened to the face. So we were very, very fortunate to have a number of occasions to uh, be with her and also Dr. Varga and, and Mr. Furtan. So that was, was wonderful. As well as uh, when we first got to Haifa, there were still, of course, a number of the original members of the Universal House of Justice were yeah. still on it. And we watched that transition. So we, we were very, very fortunate the, mm-hmm. the culture evolves at these at the national centers, the, the World Center, and we were there at that transition period. Right. So moving to your work as an author, so you're working, you were also a, a guide, a pilgrim guide, pilgrim guide for a while. Yeah, yeah. A lot, lot of different hats you well, wore. That's part of what got me going on Lighting the Western Sky. Okay, good. Be- because, good transition. Yeah, because... Um, when you're a pilgrim guide, you're only working part-time. The pilgrims aren't there all the time. And mm-hmm. even when they are, you're not necessarily with them. They have sure. free time. So when we would get to the house of Abdullah Pasha, we had to talk about the first Westerners coming there. And I always loved that because, for me, I felt as a Baha'i, it was where my story, where I come into the picture with mm. the Westerners starting mm-hmm. to arrive. But the first Western pilgrimage was so confusing that it was very difficult to to tell the story. We had May Maxwell's An Early Pilgrimage. We had um, a little bit that Rob Stockman had written about, um, uh, Robert Turner and, and uh, a few few things. But uh, the, his, his was focused more on uh, Abraham Kerala. But uh, I realized that nobody had put it together. Hmm. So I wrote off to the U.S. archives and asked them what material they had and discovered there were diaries and letters that had never been published. Wow. And uh, it was like Christmas. I would get these wonderful packets of uh, uh, photocopies of original documents. Amazing. And, and Lua Gessinger's handwriting and, and uh, other uh, important people. So it was, it was great fun. And the fact that I, I wrote that book at the World Center, actually I wrote it in the library of the International Teaching Center, which is, if you see that building, you see this beautiful uh, dome on the top of it, Mm -hmm. windows. That's where the library is. Mm. And they didn't know where to put me because I didn't work for a particular counselor. I worked 14 years of the 18 years for the ITC part-time, and I did special projects. Mm -hmm. So um, when I wasn't busy with a special project, they were very happy for me to work on the book. And I had a full Baha'i library, and you open like the Baha'i Worlds, and there's a book plate in there saying the Master's House, property of the Master's House. You wonder, you know, did Shoghi Effendi open this book? Wow. So uh, I had access to the shrines to pray about the more difficult aspects of the book. Mm. I could consult with house members, Mm. and uh, several house members um, read all or part of the manuscript. Wow. When I started getting photographs from the national office, Edward Gessinger's photos, I could go to the holy places with the custodians and we'd stand in the spot where it was taken. Right. Which was very interesting. Yeah. And, but anyway, so it was, I had a, a, a special uh, advantage because yeah. it was written there. And particularly for the third of the book that deals with the pilgrimage, because I knew exactly, you know what the springtime is like. What is it like in March when Lua Gessinger is going along the beach? What kind of flowers would she have seen? Right. Because I'm there in March. You're there. So Lighting the Western Sky, the story of the what we call the Hearst pilgrimage, just give us an encapsulation of really what the book is about and this kind of West meets East concept behind it. It's the nativity book for the Western believers. Yeah. It's how the faith got started outside of the Middle East hmm. or Asia. And uh, it is not what, just... What year was that? Well, it, it begins with, uh, in 1892, mm-hmm. with, uh, with Anton Haddad coming to New York, and then goes until about 1910. Okay. So it's sort of, that's the main period. But it really focuses primarily on the period around... 1897 to about 1903, the pivotal period where uh, the, the faith is spreading outside of the Chicago area, where Phoebe Hurst, the wealthy widow of George Hurst and mother of William Randolph Hurst, hears about the faith and um, decides to take a group to meet Abdu'l-Bahá in uh, the winter of 1898-1899. But through the pilgrimage, not only did the United States and Canada become uh, 
did the faith open up in those areas. It also opened the faith to France, England, and from there to Switzerland and Germany and wow. many other places, even South Africa through the um, Goodalls in mm. California. Mm. So uh, most countries in the world owe their, the, the first Baha'is coming to their country, in most cases, can trace themselves back through the American Baha'i community. Right, right. And it started all in that, in that, in that period. Time frame. Yeah, so it's 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 uh, fascinating. So the book is chock-a-block with stories of Abdul Baha because obviously he was welcoming these pilgrims. Uh, what stories pop out in your mind now that it's the centenary of Abdul Baha's passing in this very special spiritually charged time? Abdul Baha, when the first Westerners got to the Holy Land. The most amazing thing about it uh, is a fact. And the fact is that the first two Western pilgrims arrived the morning of December the 10th, 1898. Now, they were there as guests of Phoebe Hurst, who paid their way, Edward and Louis Gessinger. And that very morning... In France, the Spanish-American War was being brought to an end by the treaty being signed. Phoebe Hearst's son, William Randolph Hearst, with his New York and Chicago newspaper, uh, San Francisco newspapers, is genuinely given the credit for starting the Spanish-American War. Right. uh, Through yellow journalism. journalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the end of the Spanish-American War is by all historians considered to mark the beginning of the American century. Hmm. The American century literally began the morning that Edward and Louis Getzinger met Abdu'l-Bahá for the first time. Hmm. They were there by Mrs. Hurst, and Mrs. Hurst also paid for the newspapers for her son, who helped start that war. I mean, you couldn't make this up. Wow, that's amazing. What yeah. a great perspective. Yeah. And Abdu'l-Bahá treated these Westerners as very special because he saw them as the beginning of a wave, mm. that they were representing the peoples of the West. Mm. And so the uh, the Holy Land, the Baha'is in the Holy Land, had gone through hell for almost uh, seven or eight years since the passing of Baha'u'llah in 1892. And they had been in a state of mourning and also a state of agitation because they had been persecuted not only by the government, but they were being persecuted by former members of the faith who Mm. were trying to uh, take control of it. And so, first of all, the Westerners completely changed the morale Huh. of the the Baha'is there in the Holy Land with Abdu'l-Baha. Because sec- all of a sudden they saw like the veil was lifted. Exactly. Like, is it, and, and, oh, and, yeah, this because, is spreading and people exactly. are hearing about it. And, 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 and it's not defeat, it's rich, triumph. Rich society ladies from San exactly. Francisco are coming. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And on top of that, one of the things Abdu'l-Baha did was he, he had his father laid to rest in one of the rooms of a house that one of Baha'u'llah's son-in-laws um, had, had uh, offered for, the, for this. And the only person allowed to go into that room was Abdu'l-Baha, unless someone was in there for maintenance or something like that. The Westerners, he would take them by the hand and take them actually into the room where, Abdu'l-Baha, uh, where Baha'u'llah was laid to rest. Mm-hmm. And this was not lost on all the other people there. Mm. And he allowed them to do things like light the candles and so forth. Mm. And uh, really treated them with a very special deference. Mm -hmm. And he also really, uh, most of them were young women on this first first group. Mm. There were really, uh, there were three men. And it's interesting when he writes collective letters back to the group, he addresses them as women. And it's like he's ignoring the three men who were. Uh. <laughs> but he uh, he. But talk- so many of the heroes—I'm not even going to say heroines of the faith—like 
so many of just the heroes from the late 19th century, early 20th century were women. I mean, it, it's, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's got to be like 80% yeah, of yeah, like the yeah, real titans yeah. of teaching the faith and moving it forward were, were women in that time right, frame. Right, right. Martha yeah. Root mm-hmm. uh, went around the, the world at least three times. But he he talked to them about steadfastness. And also he said to them things like, uh, he talked a lot about Mary Magdalene as an example, and St. Barbara. And here we are not far from Santa Barbara, California, named for St. Barbara. I have no idea who St. Barbara So is. I had to look her up. I was thinking Barbara Bush, but I'm going to guess <laughs> it's someone else. Okay. St. Barbara was uh, in the first 400 years of Christianity and was probably a teenager, a young unmarried woman who became a very devoted Christian. And her pagan father found out that she had become a Christian and turned her into the authorities because she refused to recant her faith. And her father was responsible for her being martyred. Wow. He talked a lot about St. Barbara. Hmm. And so he also pointed out to these women that St. Barbara and Mary Magdalene had 24 hours in a day just like you do. Mm. And you can do great things as well. They have had fewer resources available to them than you have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But look how they're revered today for Mm -hmm. what they did with Mm -hmm. their faith. And uh, one of the things I found very interesting was when they came back, these young single women started getting married. And as they got married, they drifted from the faith. Mm. And so when the last of them was getting married which was Ella Goodall Cooper from Oakland, California. He wrote to her and said, you've got to help your husband become a Baha'i. Look at all these other women who came with you. They've all drifted from the faith. Don't do that. I'm paraphrasing. Sure, okay. But he he, uh, warned her not to to allow her husband to um, pull her away from the faith. So, but he, he could see into their hearts in, even though they were really, uh, he greeted them in English. Like mm. when uh, Mrs. Hurst gets to the top of the stairs that night, uh, she thanked him for allowing them to come, and he said, no, thank you for coming, and he said it in English. Mm. Mm. So he could speak English if he wanted to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he um, was... There were, there were issues of, of translation with that first group, and uh, he, he really was still made such heart connections. And they were absolutely flabbergasted at how much he knew about what was going on in the world. Wow. And particularly mm. given the fact he's living in this total backwater. I mean, and Aka, you just can't go down to the corner store and buy a New York Times or a London <laughs> yeah, Times, yeah, you yeah. know. He knew everything that was going on. And one of the things that he was really obsessed with was the uh, the effort to find the North Pole, to get to the North Pole. Oh. And I love the story that when he finally comes to Washington, D.C., and he meets Admiral Perry, or Admiral, uh, yeah, Perry, that had found the, the North, is it Perry? Perry or, or Bird, Bird, I can't Bird, remember. Bird, I can't remember. Yeah. Whichever one that was getting, one of them. The, the, got, really? the, got the, yeah. the credit. He met him at a reception in D.C. And he said, uh, you know, Admiral, I'm, I just want to congratulate you because you have done mankind a great service. We always worried about what was at the North Pole, and now that you've proven that there's nothing there, you've relieved their minds. <laughs> I love it. Abdul Baha's jocularity shining through. That's great. Oh, he had yeah. a great sense of humor. Yeah. 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 Hey, one of the things that uh, amazed me was he wrote a, a message for each of those pilgrims, and he did a play on Ella Goodall's last name. Mm-hmm. He said he hoped she would be all good. <laughs> so we understood enough about English to mm-hmm. understand what her, her name meant. But, nice, uh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Actually, when he was in London to show his humor, uh, someone complimented him on how well he pronounced English words. 
So he had this room full of reporters and other people, and he starts walking up and down and just uh, saying word after big word after big word in English and just laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Just like almost non sequitur style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Just to show he could say a whole bunch of big words in English. That's funny. That's great. So I highly recommend to the listeners to check out uh, that book. I I found it uh, mesmerizing. I couldn't put it down. And it was very... I don't know how to describe this. It was a, it's a complex history. Mm-hmm. There's some difficult stories in there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, that's why I said I described it as mysterious because it was kind of like what what was going on with all these people. There was a lot of you were able to get a lot of psychology in there mm-hmm. that a lot of history books are more like. Then this happened. Then this happened. Then this happened. And it was it was more than that. Do you, do you have anything to say on? I always. When I'm looking at uh, historic figures in the faith, want to know what started them on their spiritual journey. And it's, it's just not enough to know that they were became a Baha'i and whatever. Like, for example, um, Corinne True. Okay. Corinne True was the mother of eight children. Her oldest daughter fell down a flight of stairs when she was 10 years old and died. She had twin boys who died of diphtheria at around age three or four. Mm. She had a college-age son who had just become engaged to be married um, die in a boating accident. That was what sent her on her pilgrimage to see Abdu'l-Bahá, mm. the death of that, that son. And then the, when Abdu'l-Bahá came to Chicago... He was supposed to lay the cornerstone for the house of worship. And the day before, he went to the true home because the last surviving son in the true family had contracted TB. He had gone to, uh, while he was, he was a university student, he'd spent one summer at a lumber camp on the, in the Northwest, uh, in Oregon, I think it was, and got TB there and uh, was dying of it. Hmm. So Abdu'l-Bahá came to see the young man and spent some time with him alone. And then he went into the upper hallway and he looked up at the ceiling and said, God, take the curse off this family. Hmm. So, of course, everyone assumed he was going to get better. Hmm. But he didn't. He died that night. Hmm. So the next day, Mrs. True, who already had made it her life's work to see that the house of worship was built, even right. though she had lost her son the night before, had still come for the laying of the cornerstone. And there's this huge crowd at the field where this, the house of worship was going to be built. And Abdu'l-Bahá is three hours late. So mm-hmm. everyone's milling around, milling around, milling around. Finally, he drives up in a taxi. Rolls down the window, yells out, Mrs. True! She comes to the taxi, beckons her to jump in. They drive another block or two to the park, yeah. the beach in Wilmette, and he walks with her and comforts her for the loss of her son the night before. This is why she had the stamina, the spiritual stamina, to survive and get get that house of worship built, that equivalent of a cathedral. Wow, yeah. And that was an endeavor that took decades. Yes. And a lot of money and investments and a lot of difficulties and um, that... What was that planning committee called? That that they <laughs> yeah, the, the Temple Unity the Temple, Temple Unity, Unity Fund committee. committee or something? Yeah. Oh, there's this wonderful story about her um, when she comes on her pilgrimage. You know the the first Persians that were sent by Abdul Baha to train up the Americans were also confused on a lot of facts, and they thought that women could not serve on administrative committees. Mm-hmm. So the uh, local houses of spirituality, as they called them at that point, had, they had a men's committee and they had sort of a ladies auxiliary. Well, this was not that uncommon in the churches because sure. women were uh, not uh, equal. So uh, when Abdu'l-Bahá 
made it known that he wanted the Baha'is to build a house of worship. And the friends were thinking, oh, small little church building. And then they realized, no, he's not talking small little church building. He's talking something bigger. The men's committee said, we can't do it. We don't have enough people. You know, we're this little group. But the women's committee thought, okay, why not? And so they got together a petition. They got over 800 signatures from around the United States of people who said, yes, I would support the building of a house of worship. Hmm. And Corinne was the one that collected those. And her husband, who was the president of World Book Encyclopedia, uh, got down on their living room floor and he glued all these names, signatures together to create a long scroll. This is shortly after the son died in the boating accident. And he had decided the only way to for his his wife's broken heart to be mended was to go see Abdu'l-Bahá. So he was packing her up and their uh, young daughter, Catherine, and going to send them off to Haifa to see Abdu'l-Bahá. She'd never seen Abdu'l-Bahá before. So um, she was going to take the scroll, and they put it in a metal tube Mm -hmm. for transport. So she also had a whole trunk full of gifts that other people wanted her to to give to Abdul Baha. This is 1907, I think. Mm-hmm. So she gets to Haifa, and the morning after she arrives, or actually she's in Akka at Abdullah Pasha, she's ushered into the room where the Birani, the reception room where she's going to meet with Abdul Baha. And the trunk with all the gifts is brought in. And she wants to give him the gifts first and then pull out the scroll. So she puts the scroll behind her on the seat. And uh, Abdu'l-Bahá comes in and starts going through the trunk. All of a sudden, he stops. He goes up to her, pulls that scroll out from behind her, waves it in the air, yelling, Marjorie's car, Mrs. Hurst, this is what I want. You must dedicate your life to the building of the house of worship, waving it in the air. Mm. Mm. I heard that story from Edna, her daughter. Mm. And uh, so he spent the rest of the pilgrimage giving her instructions on what needed to be done. Oh. Mm. So when she is on her way home, passing through Italy, she runs across Thornton Chase and a couple of guys on their way. To there. there, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thornton is coming from, uh, he's the first Western Baha'i, and is coming from the Chicago area as well. He's on the men's committee. So he gets there and uh, says to Abdul Baha. I understand from Mrs. True that you really do want us to build a house of worship. Could you tell me what we need to do? Abdu'l-Bahá says, I've given all the instructions to Mrs. True. You must get them from her. Mm, mm. So they had to abolish the men's committee and the women's committee and have one committee, which Mm. was the Temple Unity Committee, which became the National Spiritual Assembly. Wow. That's fantastic. What a great story. Never heard that before. So... Uh, fast forwarding, you're doing a new book. Tell us about that. Well, this is sort of picking up where I left off. It's the the biography of Horace Holly, who okay. was the hand of the cause. He was also secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly from 1924 until 1959. Now, here's here's years. what I know about him. Mm-hmm. Nothing. You hear, I mean, you hear <laughs> that name all the time, mm-hmm. and he's obviously in the annals of great Baha'i heroes. I know he has an artistic background, but really don't know. There's New York City was there. Paris was there. But I really don't know anything about him. So uh, tell us about him. But why was a biography never written about him before? Probably because he's he's a very complex person. Okay. He also wrote a prodigious amount of, of material and just reading what he wrote, I, I can't say I've read every single thing he's written. What? I have read... How dare you? Probably, Get out. Yes. Get out. I know. I'm... I'm yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah, I did myself. <laughs> yes. Because there's so much of it. I yeah, mean, yeah. just as he... So he he was a Connecticut Yankee. Okay. From Torrington, okay. Connecticut. Hometown of John Brown, the abolitionist. All right. Who his grandfather knew. And um, he came from... Um, a well-to-do family. His, his grandfather made a lot of money. And he had a, a tragic life in that 
his family was plagued with mental illness. And so he lost his father due to mental illness when he was young. Mm. And uh, he had a very close family, a lot of boys. He had very close to a couple of his brothers, one sister. But um, he drops out of college his uh, first semester of his last year at Williams College to get married and uh, to the, the person who had introduced him to the faith, uh, Bertha Herbert, who was a um, portrait artist, who was also uh, head of interior design for Wanamaker department stores. And so they headed to Paris and they spent a little bit of time in Paris, then they went to Florence, Italy, hung out there for a while, then to Siena, Italy. And while they were in Siena, they were uh, contacted by Hippolyte Dreyfus, the Baha'i from Paris, mm -hmm. um, one of their friends, to say, guess what, Abdul Baha'i is here in France and he wants to see you. So they were invited to Thanon de Bans, which is uh, a resort they're on uh, Lake Geneva or Lake Le Mans, depending on whether you're French or, or uh, Swiss. Mm -hmm. And uh, Horace is in his early 20s at this point. He's trying to be a writer. He's okay. a poet, writes poetry, but he also writes essays. He's working on a play uh, and uh, is contemplating Are there any extant Horace Holly plays? Yes. There's one called The Read Aloud Plays, and you can easily get it on the internet. Oh, wow. And uh, so I remember not, hearing that he was yeah, a playwright. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. They're, they're very autobiographical, um, the closest he came to an autobiography. But uh, he has this mystical experience just seeing Abdu'l-Bahá at a distance. As he and his, his, his wife and his little girl are approaching Abdu'l-Bahá, he has no idea what Abdu'l-Bahá looks like. He's never seen a photo or anything, but he immediately can tell that's him with a group of people on the grass in front of the hotel. And he has an inner mystical experience right at that moment. And he says that during the first those few days there in Fanon, that he didn't really talk to Abdu'l-Bahá, he just watched him, just observed him. And he said he cried every day while mm. he was there in Thanon. And when he, uh, Abdul Baha had actually encouraged him to write about the experience. So, as a professional writer, he did. And he also published a poem about uh, Abdul Baha from that experience. Mm. So, he and his wife tried to, uh, she started working as both an artist, but she was very interested in fashion design. So, they decided to leave Italy, move to France. And they got there just before Abdu'l-Bahá returned to Paris in 1913. Abdu'l-Bahá spent more time in Paris than he did any place in the West. Mm -hmm. uh, New York was second. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, when he comes to Paris in 1913, Horace has an art gallery. He, uh, it's, he specializes in post-impressionist work, so he's interested in more modern art. Yeah. And he's uh, particularly got a couple of Scottish, um, well, the Favis movement is, you know, the, the part of the movement he's very interested in. And he's also very interested in, in publishing in literary journals. And this is when there are all these little small poetry literary journals. Yeah. And uh, he butts heads with Ezra Pound and a number of other people. Apollinaire, he's, he's, there's a, Apollinaire has a French journal, mm -hmm. a literary journal, and he writes a column for it and mm -hmm. hangs out at their offices and so forth. So he's mm -hmm. in part of the, he's really in the creative the Paris group. Review must have started exactly. around that time. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's, he's writing, in fact, he even writes uh, under a pen name in French. So unfortunately, his plans to stay in Paris are thrown off by the Germans' uh, military plans to take Paris. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so in 1914, he and his family decide they need to flee as the Germans are uh, very quickly advancing on Paris. Mm -hmm. They don't actually take Paris, but he doesn't know that. So he wrote, writes a very wonderful account of the four-day period when they try to escape from France. Mm. And uh, so that's in the book. But anyway, he gets to New York, and he's always been very attracted to Greenwich Village and the arts community. And because he's already been published in uh, both American and British uh, journals, he's already known in the arts community. And so he, 
on Sunday afternoons, there's this group of artists who have picnics across the river from Grant's Tomb in New Jersey at a place, Ridgefield, New Jersey. Um, it's a big orchard, and there are a bunch of shacks. So the artists are renting these shacks, a number of them, and uh, so they, they, the rest of them come over from Manhattan on Sunday afternoon. People like William Carlos Williams and Mina Loy and Marcel Duchamp, who's hanging out in New York at that time. A lot mm. of people had decamped from Europe because of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, Horace is there every week. They don't. He doesn't write about it, but they write about him. So he's he's imbibing all of their. They're sitting around eating sandwiches, drinking coffee, and talking about their work with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. So he's he's listening to some of the most creative minds yeah. in the West on uh, these Sunday afternoons. So he uh, becomes more and more involved in the faith, less and less involved in the art community. I think 1916 is sort of the apex of his literary career. And uh, his marriage falls apart, so he has to get a real job and uh, starts moving away from, from the arts world. Hmm. And then mm. becomes um, a member of the National Assembly in 1923 and secretary in 24, and full time a Baha'i in 1925. He's in his 30s at that point. So, from 25, how long was he secretary of the National Assembly? From then until he left for the Holy Land in 1959. Wow. And uh, he was both a hand of the cause and secretary of the National Assembly at the wow. same time. That's a lot of work. Yeah, and he writes himself letters, you know, from as secretary of the National Assembly to hand of the cause, uh. <laughs> <laughs> which is wonderful. But he, he did have two years where he was part of the secretariat and not the secretary because uh, his oldest daughter became mentally ill. Mm. And he needed uh, to find other employment for a while to help pay her medical expenses. Ah, got it. So, yeah. Now, you say that it was complicated. He was complicated. What what other complications are we talking about here? Well, he had the same problem that I think all um, people who were in positions of authority have, which is the shoot the messenger problem. And, he, you know, he was he was the voice of the National Spiritual Assembly. Okay. And he also was very connected to Shoghi Effendi, not only as the correspondent on behalf of the National Assembly, but he was the one who came up with the idea for the Baha'i world. Hmm. And so... The, the books. The books. These yeah, the annual yearly yearbooks, books. Yeah. The year, mm-hmm. They start mm-hmm. off as an annual yearbook of what's going on in the Baha'i world. So he is corresponding very closely with Shoghi Effendi about that, which also means he knows what's the big picture of what's going on in the world. And he saw things, as Shoghi Fendi said, Horace saw things the way he did. But many Baha'is didn't see things yeah. that way. Yeah. And they didn't like it mm. that Horace was, you know, sticking up for yeah. the point of view of the That was the an incredible transition after yeah. the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá. Right. And then... You know, a couple years of chaos, and then Shoghi Effendi taking the reins firmly, and then all of a sudden, all this talk about administration and building us foundations and structures and uh, and growth right. and cycles of growth, and and they're like, wait a minute, Abdul Baha, right? He just told beautiful stories and said to love one another. Right. Isn't that what the Baha'i faith's all exactly. about? I didn't know it was about exactly. building grassroots community building, exactly, exactly. Institutions, yeah. So he had Horace was able to have the big picture. He he understood the big picture of where the faith was going. That this was this was about building a whole new world with a new world government hmm. and that the Baha'i administrative structure was going to be, to morph into that, was mm-hmm. first going to be the model and then ultimately the world structure for mankind. Yeah. And he was a politics junkie, which is, I think, one of the reasons I'm drawn to him. He was very interested in current affairs. And Shoghi Effendi would read the headlines of the he newspapers. He read 10, 10 newspapers on a regular basis. Yeah. 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 So yeah. This is... And Horace is the same way. And of course, he's in New York. So he's yeah. right in the middle of everything in New York City. And he, uh, he started a journal called World Unity back in the late 20s to... Put out, it was Baha'i light. It was um, yeah. to get people who were not Baha'is who wrote on themes that we agreed with their teachings because right. he wanted to reach leaders of thought. He isn't, was, that, isn't that similar to what we're 
tasked with now by the Universal House of Justice in terms of, you know, uplifting discussions of, you know, enlightening discussions with... But Chogi Fendi had to convince Horace, which was a process, that at that time it wasn't what was needed. Uh uh But Horace, his close encounter with World War I had a huge impact on, on his thinking. When he was in those 48 hours when uh, he was, they were deciding what to do, because he was fluent in French, he talked to a lot of people coming from the front lines and heard what was happening in Belgium with the refugees coming out of Belgium mm. and the atrocities. And some of those are, he actually mentioned some of those, and they're, they're so horrifying, I can't even, I don't even want to talk about them, the, the atrocities that Horace recounted that he heard from people firsthand. And so he really was obsessed with world peace. And that was his primary goal in life from the time he first met Abdu'l-Bahá was the establishment of the Universal House of Justice. Hmm. Because he saw that, as we know, the source of all good, freed from all error. Hmm. And one of the things that struck me, he died of a heart attack about... 50 feet from the future council chamber of the House of Justice, mm. less than three years before it would be established, mm. in sight. I, I, I envision it like Moses at Mount Nebo, where Moses is shown by God the promised land, but not allowed to go in. Mm. He gets really close. He's there. He's with the hands of the custodians, helping to, be, uh, to prepare for the election of the first House of Justice, mm. and he dies of a heart attack literally in the hallway looking toward the, the room that's going wow. to be the council chamber. Wow. Yeah. A, there's a sacrificial yeah, yeah. kind of element to yeah, that. Yeah, Doesn't it yeah, seem like it? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I, I can't wait for this book. So hopefully 2022 is coming out from George Ronald. Um, really thrilled. I'm going to buy it hot off the presses. You said you had a story about Abdu'l-Bahá from Doris Hawley. Oh, this, this is a great story. Um, I've never seen it anywhere else. And apparently she got it from the, the actual woman. Um, the, there was a woman who was not a Baha'i who met Abdu'l-Baha, probably, I'm guessing, in France or England. And uh, she was, I don't know what her religious background was, but she was a Westerner, so probably Christian. And when she's going through the receiving line with Abdu'l-Baha, Abdu'l-Baha sort of stops with her and looks at her very intently and says, If you are ever in danger, you must pray to Muhammad. The lady just had no idea what to do with that statement. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So a few years later, she happens to be somewhere in Turkey when the Ottoman Empire enters World War I. And she's the wrong nationality. Okay. So she's one of a group of foreigners and what, whatever. What is, what's her nationality? I have no idea. Oh, okay, uh, the, okay. The, the story, that, as it's recounted by Doris, does not have those details in okay. it. So um, she's, she and the, the foreign nationals in that city or town are rounded up and taken to a prison. And the local officials don't know what to do with these people because they're at war with their home countries. And they assume that some of them may be spies. And she keeps trying to convince the guards that, no, she's not a spy. She just happened to be there in that, that city when this, the war got started. So the officials finally decide they're going to execute all of them. Oh, my gosh. So that night, she's, she's heard the rumor that that's what they're going to do. So that night, she starts praying, and then she remembers Abdu'l-Bahá. So she starts praying aloud to Muhammad. And very fervent, of course, praying to Muhammad. And one of the guards walks by, and here's this Western woman invoking Muhammad. And thinks, oh my gosh, maybe she's Muslim. So he goes and gets his supervisor, and he hears it too. So they decide to release her. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) I've never heard that before. I've never seen wow. it anywhere. Wow. But, but Abdu'l-Bahá, you know, I think that um, Abdu'l-Bahá, he's the mystery of God, and he knows everything. Hmm. He's not the messenger of God. Mm-hmm. 
but he knows everything because he, if he needs to know it, as he said, it appears in front of him. Mm. And that's why he could talk about what was happening in the United States, why he knew what was in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew what was hidden in a scroll behind your, uh, exactly. your back and exactly. on, a, on a couch. Uh-huh. And what's going to happen to you in the future. Mm. Mm-hmm. He told Horace as a young man, he said that people, scholars in the future are going to write about you. Mm. Now, what do you do with that information when you hear it in your 20s? Wow. You know, so... Mm. He knew everything, and uh, he was the perfect example. You know, this is why studying his life is important, because uh, we obviously, anything I tell you that I, I'm telling you he said is a pilgrim's note, and that, that has no validity. Sure. His, he has plenty of written works. But the stories of how he lived his life are very important because he is a model for us as to, to how to live our life. And I, I just wanted the other stories to, to make a big point here. Um, Ian Simple, who we got to know well while we were in Haifa, arrived in Haifa in the early 60s when he was a young man. And there was still a lady living in the area now where the lower terraces are who had, had lived in some of the Templar houses when she was little. Mm. And had actually remembered um, meeting Baha'u'llah. So Ian Simple had an opportunity to meet this woman. And Mm -hmm. he said to her, I think many of us, particularly in the West, we think of Baha'u'llah and we think of justice. Is sort of the first word that that comes to our mind. So he said, well, he couldn't imagine that Baha'u'llah was as kind and and loving as as Abdu'l-Baha. And he said, that woman just looked at him like, are you crazy? And she said, no, compared to Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Bahá wasn't kind and loving at all. Mm, mm. Which is, I mean, we can't even imagine Abdu'l-Bahá, much less Baha'u'llah's, mm, mm. you know, what that means. Yeah. And we have to remember that Abdu'l-Bahá is always leading us to his father. Mm-hmm. That's, it's not him that's important, it's his father that's mm, important. Mm. And uh, so he is, as... Um, all these stories are wonderful, but we have to remember that that's where they're going. Mm, mm. That's beautiful. Well, before we wrap up, this has been a, a, an amazing hour conversation. I feel like we could go for another hour, but you know, when we think about the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá and this first hundred years, does any last story or message from Abdu'l-Bahá or thoughts about the legacy of Abdu'l-Bahá come to mind for you? The, the one important point that uh, I, I think we need to remember is just how real this is. I mean, wh- I was very lucky that in my 20s I met a number of people who met Abdu'l-Bahá. Hmm. And most of them met him as children, and they only, or they only had one brief encounter with him. Hmm. I was lucky that Edna True, who I, I spent a lot of time with, was saw him both in Israel and in the United States Goodness. a number of times. Yeah. Mm. And Stanwood Cobb, this other man in his 90s, also did the same. That this is this is real. He's he's real. He, he's um, This is not a fairy story. I think that this is something important for all of us to remember. And it's still very... We're only now getting to the 100th anniversary of his passing. So it's not that long ago. Mm. And how fortunate we are to have... A tremendous amount of information, and more is coming to light all the time, uh, letters and and so forth, um, and that um, his message for the world is that we have to turn to the spiritual. That there is that this is not the true life. That mm. we are wasting our lives. Mm. You know, this is the one thing he kept trying to say to people. You know, you're wasting your life if mm. you're not. If you're in material to, person, uh, yeah. If you're not doing these other things, mm-hmm. it's not that this material isn't important because it is. And you know, he he had a material existence. I mean, he knew how to shoot a rifle. He knew how to swim. He, he rode every, horses. Rode horses. He knew how to be, weave baskets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he wrote two books. He designed gardens. He designed buildings. Mm-hmm. He did uh, design one at least one out, outfit for a woman. Mm-hmm. So he fashion was a, he was a bullfighter. Bullfighter. He could no, do all kinds. Just... No, he wasn't a bullfighter, but <laughs> he could have been. But uh, I think it, there wasn't anything he couldn't do, and he he didn't. 
the material world was certainly not something that he neglected, but it, it wasn't his existence. His existence was spirit hmm. all the time, hmm. all the time. Hmm. That's a beautiful, beautiful message to end this conversation on. So your historian, biographer, roots are showing. Those are incredible <laughs> stories. And uh, any any books next? Any idea <laughs> with next? I know you've been I, working for Hor- on Horace Holly for 10 I don't years. Have, no, no idea yet. No, no idea. idea. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So right. we'll see what, what, what the powers in the universe have in store for me. Well, what yeah. a treat this was. Thanks for coming all the way out to my house. It was great sitting next to a Baha'i I've long admired and having this uh, amazing conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Rain. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much and good night.